jasoncharles.net. Audio dramas. The following true story from author, performer, and activist Abby Stokes took place in New York City in the early 1990s. This is Tim, part two. The interesting thing was I actually didn't cry very much with Tim because we were in like practical, make it as good as it can be. If we can fight it, great. If we can't fight it, let's plan. So our conversations were not a wash of tears. I would sit with him in the hospital all day. If there were visitors, yes, I would cry for that. But otherwise, we would make plans. And it was so interesting because the floor that he was on in Cabrini was the AIDS floor. I mean, that was a devoted floor that was overrun. There was a nurse, we called him Superman, this sublimely attractive male nurse that took care of Tim. We would talk to him. They were amazing there because, of course, they were, it was early on. People were just dying. They weren't, nobody was being saved. It was just a matter of how long you were going to take to die in the hospital. We talked about it a lot. This was not undiscussed. This was over-discussed. You know, he was 26 and had a hole in his gut that was toxic and a colostomy bag and cancer that wasn't going away and AIDS that we didn't know much about but knew was, you know, at that time really a death sentence. So it didn't seem like it was that fast. Looking back on it, it was so fast. But at the time, it felt like it was going on. So like the notion of him wanting to give in and let him go seemed like exactly the right thing to do. And we had no idea that drugs might be coming down the line later. I wouldn't have saved him, you know, honestly. I think things were were where they were with the inside of his body at that stage. So Tim is recovering from this open wound. And I get a phone call at like two o'clock in the morning. And it's one of the nurses that I knew. And she said, Tim's having respiratory issues. I think you should come in. And so I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm on high alert and thinking, this is it. They're, they're calling me at two o'clock in the morning because it, something must have happened and he's dying right now. So I race over to Cabrini and I get to Tim's room and he's not intubated, but he has an oxygen mask on. And He's alert, but he's using the oxygen mask. And my yellow pad of paper was by the bed, as it always is. And Tim sort of motioned to it. I don't think he understood whether he could talk or be heard very well with this new apparatus on. So he motions for the pad, and he gets the pad, and he writes in very big letters, let me die. And then he circles it about six times. And I said, I am, I am not about to hold you back from whatever needs to transpire. So when I said to the doctor, you know, can you give him whatever it is that will accelerate things? She said, I hear exactly what you're asking for and I'm completely on board. So I said, the doctor's on board. They're going to start the morphine. And I think because of that, Tim felt comfortable that however it was going to happen, then he should take off the oxygen mask because he's going to die, whether it's the morphine or not having the air. So he takes off the oxygen mask and he looks at me and nothing happens. He doesn't gasp for air. He doesn't look in discomfort in any way, shape or form. And he looks at me and he says, well, what's going on? And I said, I, I, I don't know. 
And whatever that respiratory issue was, it was done. He was now completely breathing on his own without the oxygen mask, and they hadn't started to administer the morphine yet. So this was a moment for Tim and I to come to a big decision because he'd said, let me die, when we thought he was dying. Here we were at this different kind of intersection where the oxygen obviously wasn't necessary to keep him alive. The morphine was about to happen, and should we stop it? Should we sort of ride whatever the next chapter's going to be? And Tim said, no, we should let what started continue. So I said, well, the nurse is going to come in. And he said, I'm going to pretend that I don't hear her, that I don't respond to her. And so the oxygen's off his mouth, and he's lying in bed, and the nurse comes in, Tim, Tim, and he doesn't flinch, he doesn't move. And she eventually actually literally picks up his hand and drops it the way like you know it would if somebody was unconscious and then she leaves I'm like she's gone and he sits there and he's like what are we going to do and I'm like you know what then let them do the morphine like let's just see if we can keep up this charade long enough for the morphine to start and then moments later Tim says I have to go to the bathroom and I'm like well honey it's you either like lift the lid on this charade or I think you have to wet the bed (laughs) because otherwise we wouldn't get the morphine so Tim wets the bed and the nurse comes in, and he doesn't respond, and she sets up the IV with the morphine, and he falls asleep. And I would say probably an hour later, it's not quite dawn yet, it's just starting. I'm exhausted, I'm sitting in the chair beside him, and I hear him say, he isn't awake, but he says, okay boys, I'm ready to go. And he wakes up a little bit afterwards, and I said, were you having a dream? by any chance? And he said, why? And I said, well, you said something, but I don't want to tell you what you said until you tell me what the dream was. And he said that he was at the pearly gates of heaven. There was God and there was St. Peter. So the pearly gates opened and two little boy angels walked by with wings on. And Tim said, where do do I go to get my wings? And the angel said, well, you're going to have to sing for your wings. Completely appropriate. Shoe in. And so he was following the boys. And that's when he said, okay, boys, I'm ready to go. That's what I heard. And that was, he woke up shortly after. So that was that dream. And then he falls asleep again. And less than a half an hour later, I see him. He's lying flat on his back. And he puts his hands up in front of him as though he's holding something. And he makes a motion like he's signing something. And then he closes what he's holding. And again, he wakes up a little bit afterwards. And I said, Tim, did you have a dream? And he said, yes, why? And I said, tell me what it was you were dreaming. And he said, I was signing the book of life, which is what he did in the air while he was sitting in his bed. And then he started going in and out. Like he wasn't really making sense. But time went by and it was the next day. And he wasn't dead yet. He was in a mostly what seemed like kind of a coma. You know, he wasn't responsive. And his parents arrived. His parents and his sister did arrive. I felt so sorry for them because they would go and visit him and swear that he was responding to them because the littlest twitch of his eye or move of anything was obviously confirmation for them that he heard them. When the let me die thing was circled along with taking the steps for the morphine 
I actively, as his medical proxy, took him off any food and any other medications as per his instruction to me. So I made it very clear to the nurses that you know he could have any pain relief he wanted and he could have any liquids that were not liquids that would sustain him, but water, but he couldn't have anything else. And at some point during one of the visits in the hospital, Eleanor must have said to the nurse, um, you know, what are you giving him besides the morphine? And the nurse had told her nothing. And Eleanor was furious. And she pulled me out into the hallway and she accused me of trying to kill her son. I said, Eleanor, and I luckily, Tim had written, let me die in the piece of paper and circled it so I could point to that. But I also said, you know, I am his medical proxy. And we talked about this a long time. And Tim didn't want to have any food or any medication anymore. And I'm just doing what he asked me to do. And she was very upset, completely understandably, and begged me to change those instructions. And I said to her, so Eleanor, if God wants Tim to live, medicine's not going to save him and food's not going to save him. It's God's will whether or not he lives. And so I'm going to ask you to use your faith and you pray as hard as you can and get everybody else in the church to pray, but that medicine's not going to save his life. And I was being entirely manipulative. I will confess that now because I don't have a religious bone in my body, but it spoke to her and she calmed down and we didn't have to give him food or anything else. And I remember it was a week it was a week he lasted with the morphine. The oncologist had said to me that often what happens is children who are in cancer wards don't die until their parents leave to go have a meal or have that one night they leave the room because the child feels the parents' great sorrow at their passing, and so they don't want to disappoint their parents. So the oncologist said often people die when they're alone because they won't die when somebody's there because they feel them pulling them to stay. Tim was never alone at that stage because I was there, his parents were there, we were sort of rotating. And I realized, you know, maybe he needs to be left alone. So I thought, I'm just going to go to Fire Island for the day just to get away and let them have time alone with him. I do remember getting on the ferry and this very dear friend of mine who's a big guy, everybody knew what was going on. You know, everybody was being very sweet. And I just remember, I just put my head into Guy's chest. It was such a big chest and I just sobbed. Like it was just like this big bear. He didn't die while I was gone. I'm happy. <laughs> happy that didn't happen. So I came back, and Tim's condition hadn't changed at all. And then we get a phone call early in the morning, and it's Superman. And Superman calls to say, I've been doing this a long time. He's going to go today. So I rally the troops, and we head on over to the hospital. Tim is jaundice at this point. You know, he's got this intestinal thing and he's had no antibiotics because I took him off the antibiotics and he hasn't had his eyes open for these days but when we get there Tim is sitting up in bed he's sitting up in bed eyes are open his eyes are yellow because they're jaundiced and he's a little fleck of black inside the white of one eye but he's alert and he's talking and I look at Superman who's waiting for us and I say, what is going on? And he pulls me out to the hallway and he said, this often happens right before somebody dies. They can be in what seems like a coma and all of a sudden they have this rallying thing that happens. He said, that's why I wanted you to come in because it, it could be a very short amount of time that this lasts. And then chances are he'll go. And Tim is quite chipper, but he's not making sense. Like he actually says, the trans nurse, 
he tells me that he found out last night that she's pregnant with triplets. <laughs> and I was like, well, she doesn't have the body parts for that, but I sort of like that. So he was perky, but didn't make sense. And uh, Superman looked at me after Tim said that, and he just said, don't leave the room. Because I know how these people know this, you know, how they can live through this over and over again, I have no idea. And I looked over at Tim, and he didn't make a sound. He didn't gasp for anything. He just turned to stone from like, you know, you could only see him from his neck up, but it was this transformation from what wasn't a moving person, really. He'd stopped talking. His eyes were closed, but I could see life leave his body because it was from his neck up. He just stopped. There was no movement and his color slightly changed. And that was it. And I, I remember going over to kiss him on his forehead and it was a rock. There wasn't any, like there was no anything that spoke of life. His religious belief, his belief system, which obviously, you know, what's the last thing that he did, you know, as he was fading in there was signing the book of life. So like he never let go of his religious faith, even though his religious faith by all accounts would reject him wholeheartedly. And I really respected that with him, the way he was able to sort of mold it. He was a firm believer, but he believed on his terms. And he, be and he really believed that it was a misinterpretation on everybody else's parts to have the judgment, you know, that we all see all the time. His religion sort of popped up in moments. It wasn't like he talked about it all the time. He asked me to pray that day when he was feeling so bad, but that it was really the final thing for him. It was very important for him to ultimately go to heaven. But, uh, you know, Tim in his own way, even though he didn't believe in golden roads and mansions and all of that, but it was important to him that he sort of resolve these issues. And it wasn't covering his bases. That was just part of his spirit as a person. After he passed, I remember his mother being there. She stayed with him. And I remember going into the nurse's station. And again, these nurses all knew me. So they didn't mind. I immediately sat in the nurse's station and got on the phone to find the funeral home in Oregon to see if they could fly his body back on the same flight they flew Eleanor back on. I wanted to see if we could coordinate that with her. So then Eleanor left the next day with Tim in tow. That's when the AIDS quilt was just being put together. So I put together a panel for the AIDS quilt and called the Odeon, Ansel Hawkins, who ran the Odeon at the time, to tell him Tim had died. And I asked if we could have his memorial service there. And God bless them, they shut down the Odeon. I think it was a Saturday afternoon. They closed the place down for us to have his memorial service. I think we had to be out by 2 o'clock. So the AIDS panel was there. People signed it. We had champagne and great toasts. I have to say it was, a, it was a fabulous memorial service. And the flip side of it was it was the same day that they were having Tim's funeral in Oregon. It was why I wanted to have it be the way it was going to be at the Odeon, because I knew that there were things happening at that funeral that would not have pleased Tim, that his parents needed to do, but that talked about a religion that he didn't completely agree with the limitations of it. And his mother had actually sent me a picture of him after he'd been prepared for the open casket. And like, he was made up horrible. Like, it was just like, well, I really wanted to have the memorial service be exactly what Tim wanted. And he told me, like, I knew what music to play. It was Lark's Ascending. That was what he wanted to have play as people came in. I knew who to ask to speak. Like, all of that had been laid out by him. 
and John was there. John had come to New York to see Tim before he died. So they got to speak to each other before he died, and then John came back for the memorial service. There were a lot of people at the memorial service. It was really fun and beautiful and elegant, and just the way Tim had sort of prescribed it to be, as opposed to the lasagna in the rectory that was happening on the other side of the country, (laughs) where potentially people might have been saying that it happened because he was gay which was his big thing that he was going to, he knew that there were people at the church that were saying that that's why it happened. So that was, uh, you know, I was quite driven to not have there be any shame or whatever the hell was happening over there. I wanted to just be glorious joy and, you know, gratefulness for him. Yeah, it was a pretty fabulous party, I have to say. And then people came here afterwards. Actually, I remember really vividly after he died, a friend of mine's brother had been on that Lockerbie flight that went down, Jenny, and Jenny came over the night after Eleanor left, and it was so hot here. I didn't have an air conditioner yet, and it was so hot, and the only cool place in the apartment was the kitchen because of the tile floors, and I remember Jenny and I just laid down on the tile floors to talk, and Jenny said to me, you've been in a horrible accident. She said, you need to treat your emotions as though it's a full body experience she said so if you need to curl up in a ball for days if you don't need to eat if you do need to eat if you don't need to talk whatever it is you need to really respect that this first aftermath is as though you've been in a horrible horrible accident and I was so grateful she said that because it was exactly I also felt like I'd lost my husband not because there was a romantic thing between us you know we had an intimacy that was very condensed but it was very similar to what i imagine old couples are go through when they're trying to figure out how to handle that last chapter so i was devastated and yet i was entirely fortified by tim's grace and by the fact that we had really controlled what was happening to the best of our ability it's why i really feel so strongly that Everybody with their loved ones needs to really discuss this, whether you're young or old, because you don't know when it's going to happen. But, you know, we, we need to talk about what your wishes are and what's the reality and what's the ugly part of this and the beautiful part of it, because that's the only way that you can start healing after it happens. I remember Superman actually came to the memorial service and he passed me a piece of paper when he walked into the Odeon and it, and it said, grief is the pain of the rope burns of trying to hold on. I thought that was so gorgeous and so true. And I guess luckily for me, because although it was fast, the process was very clear, I I wasn't trying to hold on to Tim. You know, I very happily let him go because I didn't want him to be in any more pain. I missed him, but, you know, it was so right. It was exactly as it was supposed to be. So there was no regret about that. I mean, it was sad, obviously, but it seemed so natural because of how how it had sort of unfolded and mostly unfolded because of his grace. It really was his generosity of spirit to help people process it before it happened. And I felt so lucky. Who knew how long or short it was going to be? And the the intervention of my friends saying, you've got to stop going to the hospital every day. I didn't regret one second of it then because it had happened so fast. I felt so grateful that I had been able to spend the time with him. And I felt actually really grateful for having gone through the experience as hard as it was 
it was the end of the summer. I, I think I went out to Fire Island and just got lost there for a while and just, you know, enjoyed the resting there until the body got out of the trauma. I went to Angels in America shortly after Tim died, and I was apoplectic in my seat, enough that the woman beside me asked if she should escort me out of the theater because I was such a mess. I found that, you know, it was unbelievable and fabulous, and I was probably a little early for me to see it, and that's why I was such a wreck. But it's so easy to talk about it now, but like what we have to remember is like people coming out of the closet and dealing with AIDS and people f- afraid to use the same fork and all that stuff was still happening and happened for a long time after. So anything that gave heart to these horrible stories of what people were going through, you know, whether it was the normal heart or whether it was Philadelphia or any of those, I was thrilled to have any of that be out in the open. I actually shortly thereafter took a class at the new school called The Social Construction of Disease that was written by the guy who wrote and the band played on. He was teaching the class and it was all about how we deal with disease and some diseases we feel bad about. We, you know, we feel bad when somebody gets cancer. People weren't feeling bad about AIDS. People were not looking at AIDS, you know, the broad spectrum of society was not looking at AIDS and being like, oh my gosh, we need to cure this. These poor, young, predominantly male in the United States, people are dying from this. You know, it was happening because people done something wrong was what a lot of people were saying. And that was so inappropriate and so absolutely inhumane. So anybody doing anything, showing the true stories of the heart behind the people suffering, anything about AIDS and about people's fight and the reality of it and the statistics spoke to me, and I couldn't get enough of it. Did the AIDS walk and was like powerfully advocating for money and research. I'm trying to think, like, did I, if I looked back on it, would, would there be anything that I would have spent more time, spent less time, done anything differently? And I, I, I don't know that I would have changed anything. I couldn't go to the memorial services because I couldn't deal with the grief that other people were experiencing. And I think I was protecting myself because I'd had this sort of amazing process with it and I didn't want to fall into the dark hole. I wish I'd gone to the memorial services I didn't go to. I wish I hadn't chickened out on letting myself be completely wrung out emotionally. I, that was, I do regret that. I, I, that day that I walked into to Gramercy Park and turned around and didn't go into that church and other times when it was offered you know when things happened over that next year I I regret that and I think I was just afraid I I was going to completely fall apart and that would have been fine had I fallen apart and I might not have fallen apart but I didn't do that and I I, not only do I regret it because I think it wasn't respectful but I think I just wasn't challenging my own ability to fall apart or not I went with what I felt but I, I think I remember regretting it at the time. I remember the next day feeling, like, and I don't often feel regret. It's not sort of in my lexicon, but I remember thinking, hmm, it wasn't a, I should have done that. It was sort of a, I could have done that. That's probably the only thing I can think of. It's funny, a friend of mine said to me the day of the memorial service, a light went out of your eyes. A light is gone. And I think the light was innocence. I don't think it was something bad that I had a darkness in my eyes my take of his observation was, you know, we all have to go from child to adult at some point. And I think child to adult is really about 
knowing what the real world has, which sometimes the real world has very sad things or very mean things or whatever it was. And I think the light wasn't that I somehow was not going to be as effervescent, but I think it was just this transformation that like all innocence had left, you know, left the room because somebody who, if didn't, nobody deserves to die. You know, he was a lovely addition to the world and it sort of was like, well, I guess we can't rely on anything because if it made sense, he'd still be here. But I guess things don't make sense. Things just go the way they go, <laughs> you know. So that's an innocence. That, but it's. I felt empowered, really, by all of it. I felt like it was a, an amazing experience that I was really grateful to have shared with him. That was more the aftermath than sadness or loss. I was really lucky to have gone through it, and really lucky that you know he was so gracious. And I hope you know some part when I'm a nicer person than I am on other days it's probably because I'm trying to channel Tim (laughs) it's not necessarily my nature (laughs) but it was his yeah there's the story you've been listening to Tim part two in audio dramas exclusively on jasoncharles.net for more information about author performer and activist Abby Stokes go to abbystokes.com jasoncharles.net Deep Deep Talk, talk, Deep deep sounds. Sounds